time for breakfast. Trauma for Breakfast is a crowded table of wounded children, parents, spouses, caregivers, and weary souls. Together, we join in honest conversations about the behaviors and challenges of parenting and working with children who have experienced trauma. There's always room for one more at the table to share in the stories, science, and healing as we learn to better understand and care for each other. We are a table without shame or judgment because life can be hard and lonely, and we all know that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I'm Stacy. I'm a mother of seven children and have fostered for over 13 years. As an RN and former public school teacher, I quickly realized this type of parenting was not taught in a textbook or class. Let's learn together to parent different, not harder. Welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Trauma for Breakfast. I am your host, Stacey Gagnon, and today we have two very special guests, and we will be talking about pregnancy and substance use disorder, which really that in and of itself sounds very taboo, and there's a lot of stigma around it. So today we really want to unpack a lot of the stigma and a lot of the things that we see within this population. And so I have two experts in this field. First is Tara Sundum. Tara Sundum has been a neonatal nurse practitioner in the Valley, of, which is Phoenix, Arizona, for uh, over 25 years. And also Michael White, who has his master's in criminal justice, but has landed in this field of working with those who are affected by substance use disorder, but especially the population who are um, pregnant. So let me go ahead and you guys say hey, and if you want to add something to your introductions, that would be great. Hi, this is Tara Sundum. Um, like Stacy said, I am a neonatal nurse practitioner that really I have always loved babies. That's been my love. And in 2015, in our neonatal intensive care units, we just started to see an influx of babies that were withdrawing from the substances that they were exposed to in utero. And if you've ever seen a baby withdrawal, you'll never, ever, ever forget it. Families tell me that it's like having the worst flu and migraine times 100. And when you see a baby withdraw, it's heart-wrenching. If it was our, my little one, my son's baby, I would want the very best care for them. And our neonatal intensive care units are where we care for sick babies in the hospital. Unfortunately, it's just not the ideal setting for a little one to go through that withdrawal process. And so in 2015, got the bright idea of how do we make this better? And um, my co-founder, was like, we're going to, we can do this. We're, you know, it won't be that hard. Well, it's a lot harder than, um, <laughs> than what we thought. We're definitely not the business people. And thank goodness I've um, gotten a great group of business people behind us, but we started to create Hushabai really to make it a better place for babies to withdraw and focus on that. And very quickly, I learned about adverse childhood experiences. And mind you, this was 20 plus years of being a nurse and neonatal nurse practitioner. I had never heard of adverse childhood experiences. I had no idea. I was that nurse. I don't know that it ever came out of my mouth that shame on this mom. How did you do this to your baby? But I definitely thought it. And I did not understand 
opiate use disorder and substance use disorder. I had no idea that, you know, the brain changes and and then the impact of adverse childhood experiences with babies if they're little one, if they're placed out of home and not with their biological parents. And so very quickly our care model that it immediately was save the babies changed to save the families. And so that's kind of where Hushabai started. And I love that you said that, Tara. And for those of you that are wondering about Hushabai, Tara had this dream of creating a nursery to support this specific population. And it wasn't just about the mother and it wasn't just about the infant. It was about the, the mother infant dyad or the two of them and seeing them as one instead of seeing them as separate individuals. And so Tara set out to start this Hushabai nursery and she brought on Michael White. And so I'd love to hear from Michael or Mike to, and tell us kind of how you got involved in the field and, and how you are now in this space. So I come from a personal lived experience where uh, I was lost for over a decade, uh, trauma induced lostness, um, if that's a word. Uh, but I was uh, I was a substance user. And uh, ultimately, I had to be incarcerated for my time out and my education to kind of take hold. But what I learned in that experience is that I had no problem being accountable for the uh, things that I did. What I didn't agree with is that I had to go into jail and almost die from detox. And so when I got out of uh, my incarceration period, uh, I went back to school. And yes, I was a master's in criminal justice after some time. And I was definitely an outlier in that class. Uh, It's funny that you bring it up because I get to laugh about how much of a black sheep I was in that department at that time because everybody else was just trying to get promotions and things. But what's interesting is after my master's degree, I went into children's services with that degree, and I was running a court up in Flagstaff that focused on wraparound (laughs) services. And so this would mean that corrections officers were working out with 15-year-olds at a CrossFit gym. So the relationship was different per se. And what I learned in working with those kids, because I specialized in the kids aging out, is 99.9. I honestly can't remember a kid that their plan was not to return home. Every single one of the kids I worked with, their plan was to return home. Uh, So they went through this huge traumatizing situation where they were taken away from their family, most likely for years at a time. But the moment they were turning 18, their plan was to go back home. And it broke my heart because I just feel like the whole system's backwards if that's what's ultimately going to happen. And so after that time, I got stolen uh, by a a gentleman named Nick Stavros, who worked for Community Medical Services, and he wanted to make an impact on criminal justice for the purposes of medication-assisted treatment. And so our first project was in Maricopa County, but then five years later, we had about 50 projects in prisons and jails in 14 states, and then I helped consult with some others. But in that work of doing this medication-assisted treatment in-reach work to this pregnant population, we're almost setting these families up to be out of home taken because there's no services being taken in and there's not these other supports. And so you're basically just ruining this family trajectory, from my viewpoint, by keeping them incarcerated for these low-level drug crimes or any of these other things where we could probably pause for the purpose of accountability, add in some services and have a better community at the end of the day, because we're supporting these folks and we're not holding them accountable. I think I'll end there. I'll go on some half an hour tangent. 
Well, I'm going to actually ask you to unpack something because okay. Michael, my, my audience is probably saying methadone. You're just, okay. you're adding to the drug use. You're just giving them drugs. So could you yeah. please unpack that especially in regards to a pregnant woman? Yes, ma'am. Uh, so for pregnancy specifically, and ultimately uh, methadone, buprenorphine, subutex to be specific. So that would be the buprenorphine product that not does not have naloxone in there. And that's because you do not want to throw a pregnant woman into a precipitated withdrawals, uh, just in case they do use. And so those two medications are approved for pregnant populations. What I would argue back is that the life of illicit activity is very busy. And it, it comes with a lot of things you do on a daily basis and a lot of uh, low-level crimes or low-level situations that can ultimately cost the community an insane amount of money, court, police inactivity, whatever. But with crime and with illicit activity comes all these other things. Coming into a clinic and getting a medication, talking to a doctor, talking to a counselor, getting services for residential, filling those, those gaps in social determinants of health, that is not living an illicit drug habit. That is completely opposite. In my definition, it would be you know, if, if I was diabetic and I hadn't seen my doctor for a while and I was relapsing on pumpkin pie, uh, I get back into treatment and I get help. So it's uh, curious to me how we always pick on substance abuse around these things. And so I'll give you an example. I, I do a lot of judges trainings. Right. And so back in my world of childhood services, we had this crazy situation where mom was terminal. She had cancer. We knew she had about three months to live. And uh, she was being given end-of-life medication. And so that put her in a position to be under the influence. However, do you not let that child go in for that last 90 days of their mother's life? Who gives a hell if she's high, right? If you're truly concerned, have somebody else there or something else. But the court doesn't get to make these decisions. You know, the family gets to make the decisions and they need to be supported in making those family decisions that make sense for them. And so that's where I come from. Yeah. Did I get off topic? I got off topic. No, that was, that was perfect. And I, okay. I honestly, and Tara, why don't you, you jump on as well? Because, you know, as, as a neonatal practitioner, you're going to have some of the science behind this. And what do you see in, as appropriate treatment? And how is it differ than what treatment was maybe provided while you were working in our NICU facilities. And NICU, for those who don't know, stands for Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. So those are our, our neonates or our youngest youngest babies, newest babies. Yeah. I would say number one, when, when Michael was saying a pregnant mom that is struggling with opiate use disorder, so any type of opiate use, the treatment of choice is to transition that mom over to medication-assisted treatment. Whatever form works for her. If that's buprenorphine, if that's methadone, um, what, whatever works, but doing that under a medical medically supervised transition is what's necessary. Now, does that transition take a great deal of time to get families, get moms and dads to a stable dose of that medication so that they are not using illegal substances on top of? It does. Sometimes it can take six to eight weeks to get to what they call a steady state, which means um, moms, moms describe it to me as the fog lifts. They start thinking clearly. And so many times they put their fingers in quotes and they're like, I'm finally normal. That's what I didn't understand as being a 
provider in the hospital, I was like, this mom is being prescribed methadone, but she's still using fentanyl. And it was like, I did not get that. And I really thought the MAT clinics were just giving legal, you know, making drug use legal. And then I found out, oh, it takes that long for them to get stable. And if they're not stable, they're so unwell. They're so sick, you know, vomiting, diarrhea. I mean, they're miserable until they get their next dose of that medication assisted treatment. And so that took a long time for me to understand. And when I did, I was like, aha, it's not that my families aren't dedicated. It's not that they're not trying. It's not that they're not engaged. It's the fact that we just don't have them to that steady state yet. And everyone goes, we'll get them to it quicker. Well, they have, there is a risk with methadone um, that you can overdose. It has such a long half-life that it, it is, you know, something that we have to very slowly go up and, uh, and adjust. Uh, but with babies that are exposed to legal or illegal substances that are considered opiates. So even methadone or buprenorphine, that baby's still going to withdraw. They're still going to go through that dependent state. Now, are babies ever what we call addicts? And whenever I see it, I'm like, oh my God, there's that A word. It has such a negative connotation, even for an adult. When I say you have an addiction or you have an, you're an addict, I mean, that just makes all of us cringe. And it's just something that if we can get away from using the A word as my F word, um, get rid of using that and really talking about opiate use disorder and substance use disorder. I do believe that stigma and judgment are going to improve and we're going to have families, all of our community members seeking treatment because we're all going to understand that this is a chronic illness and a brain disease. So back to the baby, when they go through that withdrawal state, what that looks like is, again, the same exact symptoms that you and I go through when we have the flu. They have a very high-pitched cry, though, um, almost like a cat cry. They're lucky if they can sleep maybe 10, 15 minutes at a time. They do seem like they really hurt. They have tummy aches. They not always can figure out how to um, feed. That's what we're looking at. And when they're going through that, a quiet, dark environment, with someone that can hold them 24 seven, preferably the biological mom or dad, babies do better. I am a baby whisperer and I can make babies subtle, but if I can teach that mom or dad how to do what I know and what I've learned over 25 years, babies just respond. And what you find is what Hushabai's found is that we don't have to use as much pharmacological treatment as we did in the NICU, in the NICU, the average, a national average length of stay for a baby that is opiate exposed prenatally is 22 days in the neonatal intensive care unit at about, let's just give an estimate of $3,000 a night. So 22 days times 3,000, we're looking at $60,000 for one baby in the NICU opiate exposed. How should I nursery is less than $1,000 a day. Our average length of stay is six and a half days. You're looking at every one of my clients, well, 99.5, I think, percent of my clients have been Medicare, Medicaid, um, is their acts or who their, who their provider is or payer. And so you and I, as a community, are paying for these little ones. And if we provide them such good care 
And we provide a very trauma-informed environment where the moms and dads do not feel judged. They don't feel stigmatized. They come in and they go, I'm in a safe place. And all of a sudden you see that aha moment happen where they're like, gosh, maybe I really can do this. Maybe I really can parent. I didn't think I could, but it sounds like, you know, I'm seeing other moms and dads here at the same place, helping their babies withdraw and hearing that they're being able to parent their baby successfully. That is what Hushabai is about. We have shown that for families that are connected with us prenatally and engaged in our programs, we hold about, now we're about 50 groups a month virtually that we hold. Those families that attend our groups, 80% of those families are going home with their babies. That is something that is unheard of. Having babies placed out of home when there is substance use in their parents' history is a very high number. Us being at 80% of our families being able to provide a safe home environment for their baby on discharge from Hushabai is huge. We have now served, I think, 303. We hit the 300 mark last week. 303 babies since November of 2020. We had over 150 babies that we tried, that we had been working with prenatally, that we tried to get to Hushabai. So when you look at that number, we're almost at 500 babies in less than two years that are impacted. And those are the ones that, those are only the ones Hushabai knows. When we're looking at the impact of keeping babies healthy, safe with their families and the outcomes, we're being able to hopefully put a slice through that generational trauma that these families have went through. And hopefully we're going to make it that it's, you know, not intergenerational, that we're able to really make an impact on that. One of the things that I love that you talk about is just even the supports afterwards, working in the, within this population and, and just seeing the effects on children of that generational trauma and generational abuse and generational substance use disorder. We have to start upstream. As a foster parent, so many times we would get a call for a three-month-old who was failure to thrive or a six-month-old who had been abused or, you know, where these babies went home without supports. I specifically remember I, I was working with our some pregnant inmates and part of the program that I created, we would go into the homes and work with the families before the, the moms came home. And I was sitting with an eight-year-old little girl on the floor and she, she was just coloring these butterflies. And she looked at me and she said, I'm afraid to love my baby brother. And I said, well, that's going to be so sweet. Why are you afraid to love him? And she said, because my mommy will come home and she'll use drugs because she always uses drugs. And my grandma says, we can't keep another baby that we'll have to adopt him out. I remember thinking, oh, like for an eight-year-old to carry that and for a mom to come home with her baby and not have the supports to be able to stay in recovery. And I I don't know, I'm just a big fan of that because I look at that eight-year-old and I think like, okay, she's already carrying what she shouldn't be carrying. I'd love to ask you, Michael, You make such an important comment and it's something Tara and I like cry on each other's shoulders all the time about. And so working in an OTP, you know, for 10 years, I worked in there a decade during my bachelor's, master's and a little bit after I would see grandma, daughter 
and grandbaby in the same clinic. And so it is a generational issue. You know, we learn from our families and we do these things. The the thing that nobody really wants to talk about is a lot of the ladies we're serving, this is their third baby or their fifth baby. It is not their first baby. And there's a lot of federal programs that it has to be their first baby to take advantage of. So there's no other systems of care out there for these stigmatized people that, oh my God, God forbid they had a second baby on MAT or as they were homeless or as they were being sex trafficked or all these other things that were coming across. And so it's such an important comment because I truly believe that the work Tara is doing I'm not going to see grandma in the OTP or grandbaby in the OTP 10 years from now. And I would encourage everybody, the, the nation, if you want to continue to have generational addiction across the country, keep on responding the way you have been. Treat these folks like crap. Hold them accountable for little things like missing meetings or not having a bus pass to get to the meeting you're having them go to. And if you want to run it that way, we're going to be in the same place when we wake up 10 years from now. However, what I will tell you is that in the four short years that I've seen just these different services or just the conversations taking place uh, differently to these families in a supportive manner instead of accountability has changed their their family's addiction and their family trajectory. And so I, I do believe it's truly important. Absolutely. And, and let, me, let me add this. I believe that when we look at generational issues like this, relationships are the agents of change. And so one of the things in my area that we're looking at rolling out is a program called The Nest, where we will provide mommy mentorship, where we will have these families, where we will pair them up with a woman who's in this community to be able to walk alongside in the messy, hard stuff and help them parent, help them get to meetings, help them to be able to do the simplest things because we parent how we were parented. And so if we grew up with early adversity and adverse childhood experiences and all of the chaos that we see a lot of our kids dealing in, then that's how we know to parent. And that's what we know to be safe and right. And so I, I look at what you guys are doing is so foundational in setting up something so that women are able to walk into a place where they're not stigmatized and not be separated from their baby and then look outward from that and say, okay, I, I believe in myself because when we are dealing with trauma and we are dealing with ACEs, then we are dealing with what are called internalized stigmas and internalized mm -hmm. stigmas mean that we deserve the suffering that we're having. And kids who grow up with adversity believe they're not lovable, they're not worthy, and that what happens to them is their fault. Then they become adults who believe the same thing. And so then when we start pointing at substance use disorder or opioid use disorder as a moral failing, then we are actually bolstering internal stigmas. And there's no healing in that. One of the questions I would love to hear from you guys is what are the trends that you are seeing post-pandemic? <laughs> I would say um, more and more people struggling and less services available. It just seems like barrier after barrier happens. Um, for example, I had a mama that recently was her plan was to do a home delivery to skirt Department of Child Safety because she wanted to parent. Um, she was still struggling. And her hope was to just fly under the radar. And thank goodness she got connected with us. We ended up 
getting her down here to the Valley and doing a medical transition over to methadone. And that mom had never in all of her years of struggling with opiate and substance use disorder had never, ever been told about methadone. She had tried um, Suboxone in the past and she goes, I never, ever did anything with the methadone. After three days in the hospital, she called me and she's like, I've never felt this good. I've never felt this good ever. Um, I was like, are you kidding me? All we needed to do was get her to somewhere. And, and the hospital down here in the Valley, Banner Desert, their group in that, in that OB labor and delivery triage, they must be very trauma informed. Um, We use them very regularly for families that are scared to death, that want to desperately get well. When you see that and you have this mom that has had babies that have had her right severed, babies that she ended up placing for adoption, and now her being able to parent this little one very, very differently. What we didn't plan on with this mom, so we get her transition to methadone. She's saying she's never felt better and we return her to home. And okay, now where is she going to get her methadone? Every single day, 45 minute drive to the clinic, 45 minute drive home. She has one vehicle. She's supposed to work. We're trying to do all those. I'm like, okay, we did not think this through. Barriers and then trying to, with gas prices, how do you pay for gas to be able to get to and from the clinic? And we know that this medication is what she needs to be able to be well and to be safe and to parent successfully. But even me, who's been doing this forever, I'm like saying, okay, we're going to get you down to here. We're going to transition you to the medication. We're going to make sure that your baby's safe. And then we're going to send you back up home. And we're like, where's the closest clinic? Oh, 45 minutes away. Fabulous. Okay. Well, that was not thought through. And so we just, I feel like my, our, our community, I feel, feel like the barriers just continue to pop up and like, they just don't get a break with the isolation of COVID. That's not a good place to be. We need human interaction. Uh, I thought something very interesting of what you said, Stacey, you know, with your program of really being aligned with another, another mom, it is all about that. It is about that connection and having healthy supports. My families, when I ask them, do you have any friends? Very rarely do they have a friend, not even one. And usually that one friend is not healthy. I I mean, really, when you look at the gravity of that, I raised my kids, but I didn't just raise my kids by myself. I had family, I had friends, I had neighbors, I had, you know, classmates. I, I, I mean, I took everyone in my community to help raise my boys. How do you do that when you don't have a friend? And it's not the fact that my moms and dads are awful people. They just have an illness, a disease, a diagnosis that is very stigmatized and judged that changes who we are or who they are when they're struggling with that disease. It's, it's really opened my mind and definitely my point of view of where we as an entire nation need to get to. We have a lot of work to do. What we have been able to show is if you give a mom and dad 
and baby, the support that you and I would want for our loved ones, we see it every single day that they succeed. We have four peer supports, now um, three moms and one daddy that have all been through the Hushabai program. They're now working for Hushabai. Every time I listen to them connect with another mom and dad and share their story, I get choked up. I'm like, I remember you, my daddy peer support right now. I met him when he was 17 days sober. I worked with him when he relapsed. I called DCS on him. I got called really bad names by him. Two weeks later, when we got him well, and we ended up, you know, having him do all these things uh, to be able to prove that he could parent his baby successfully, he now works for us. He just needed help at that time. And for us to understand that opiate use disorder, substance use disorder, any type of the A word addiction, there are oopsies out there. And does every oopsie mean that they have to spiral completely out of control? I don't think so. And to just only have a safe place is huge. Go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say only if your mission is to hold them accountable, right? But um, I, I would just add to that and say some of the trends that I've noticed is definitely more homelessness, and that's not unique to Phoenix uh, opposed to the country. We do see an increase in fentanyl use. We're seeing a new substance uh, that's more powerful than fentanyl showing up. It starts with a C. I'm sorry, I don't have it off the top. Carba, of right fentanyl. Yeah. Carba. Isn't it like a hundred times more? That's what yeah. they're saying. And uh, so I sit on the Haida uh, subgroup task force, and that's what we're seeing. We're starting to see the initial come across right now. Mike, um, yes, ma'am. Tell me how policies need to change to support what you're seeing as trends. I can't take off my tinfoil hat for this one. <laughs> I, I really can't. Like, I, I just... I don't know how we look at it. Like the last decade, we've lost more people from fentanyl than all the world combined. And we're just letting these substances come into our country to take out another decade of working people. I really think it's like a low level war. I mean, I don't know how to see it any other way. So I apologize for the tinfoil hat, but I just don't know how a million people in the last decade, Stacey, and we're going to have two million in the next decade. It's it's just insane. So I don't know about the policy. The war on drugs doesn't help. Right. And so it, it definitely does have to be a countermeasure to the war on drugs. And I'm more of a supportive policy person. I believe you get more information, the stronger relationships you have. Right now, the criminal population wouldn't trust anybody to tell them the truth of anything because we have these huge things. We're still, you know, if you sell fentanyl to your friend and that friend dies, we're going to put you in prison unless you snitch off the person that you got these things from, right? And so it's it's very much these policies that are punitive. I, I don't have an answer for you, Stacey, but I would like to uh, just go back to the trends real quick because what are we, we are seeing like an increase in in-home births, like doulas, birthing centers to try to skirt past the system itself. We're seeing an increase in sex trafficking cases, which uh, concerns me about the safety bo- uh, safety or the Super Bowl coming. And then barriers are interesting because some of it, and I've heard this on other podcasts be discussed, but the way the financial system for reimbursement is set up is for the service. It's not for the outcome. And so there's a lot of conversations around value-based purchasing and these other things, but we all know that there's good doctors and bad doctors, but those doctors are getting paid the exact same service bundle rate, right? And so they're not 
getting paid on the outcome, just the service. So I think that has to change to where the good service providers do have to be put on a pedestal because they're doing evidence-based and uh, outcome work that's helping these families. And then I'll just say uh, one thing that we've noticed in our system of care, because you're working with folks like Taros and Southwest, and you're really trying to put this continuum of care together, is that one person inside that system flow that has that stigma or discrimination can ruin the entire system's work that we've spent six months on for this family, but they don't think that they're deserving of this baby. So they start uh, doing weird things at the end. That's because that system has to be on built on a level of trust. And so one person can break it all down. Well, I would love for each of you just to share one quick success story. Tara, you're first. I'm going to talk about a mama that recently showed up at Hushabai four weeks in a row. The first one, she had, a, she had had a previous baby that I think was 13 months old at that time. Um, she was pregnant again. She had custody of her of her 13-month-old. And she showed up at Hushabai just following through and her being pregnant again. She was joining groups. And she said she needed another car seat. Her car seat was stolen. So we, we got her another car seat. She had done our car seat um, safety class before. The next week, she came in and said that her anti-anxiety medications were not good. We got her a referral to Allium Behavioral Health and our peer supports met with her. We all thought... She was, she was not using, we're like, you know, I think, I think she's, she's okay. We felt baby was safe. The 13 month old, the next time she shows up the next week, literally this four weeks in a row, she shows up and she said that there's domestic violence. So we get her a ride to go to Surgeon's center. We have all the intake we get everywhere. Mom says, yes, that's where I want to go to make sure that I'm safe. Again, we still thought she was well on medication-assisted treatment, but just said it wasn't a good situation at home. And the fourth week, she shows up very much under the influence, driving her 13-month-old and coming in and asking for help. And we're like, holy crap, what do we do? (laughs) And we ended up, you know, obviously saying, this is not safe. We, We, you know, this is not okay. We got her to agree to go to a detox and to get her her medications adjusted. We took her to uh, the hospital first to get medically cleared. So just so you know, it's not that easy just going to a detox. For a pregnant mom, you need to go to the hospital, have them look at you, say, yeah, you're okay. Now you can go to the detox. So then we go to the detox, being able to make sure that her baby was safe with Department of Child Safety, with our team, with their family, um, that care coordination is crazy. And two months later, she had her baby last week, healthy, little boy. She showed up a month later, I guess I should say this. Shows up and a month later, completely doesn't even look like the same same woman. Gives us all like hugs and is just saying, thank you so much for caring for me. She has her baby. She's well. She just needed support. She now has both of her babies at home. She's doing very, very well. The fact that she trusted to come to Hushabai every single time she needed us, even though we were like, holy crap, what do we do? What do we do? It just shows that she came and we were there and we didn't judge and we just went, okay, everybody, all hands on deck. How do we do it? And now to see her healthy and well 
is just a crazy, amazing thing. And we're so darn proud of her. That's awesome. She was in the, she was in the office yesterday and I did not recognize her. I'm like, Oh my God, that's you. And we're all just (laughs) laughing about it. Cause it's, I don't know. It was like four months ago, but she is killing it. I mean, she's just awesome. That's an excellent story. My story is going to be a little uh, weird, like I always am, but uh, my story is more about Tara, actually. I've been doing this work for like stigma and discrimination work for a little while. Anybody who's ever done it, like governor's office or whoever calls you up and they're like, hey, do you have a past patient? And we'd love if they fit this criteria and this criteria. They basically want the chase CEO, right, that uh, got hurt playing volleyball and then got prescribed some opiate. And then it's like this beautiful story that fits in all these boxes. It, it looks it looks pretty, right? That looks Yeah, good. it looks pretty. And the person's wearing a dress and their blonde hair, blue eyed, and they present really well. It's always they have visible. all their teeth and it's very palatable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not that's not what we're doing. Right. And so uh, we had we, we got started through philanthropy. So we were fortunate enough to have that group come to our clinic, uh, which is very unique for that group. And so they're very dedicated to what we do. And so. They came and we we got a past patient and the past patient we put would be like putting me in front of them. Right. And uh, she's got tattoos and she's she's the person. She's the person we're serving. What I can tell you is that I have never heard a more intelligent person from both sides of the fence tell her position, how she got there why Hushabai was helpful, why their philanthropy group was helpful, and how all these things, even being on this podcast and people listening to these things and how they may change how they connect with the next person that comes across. But putting a real patient that graduated uh, through us in front of this group and just seeing humans for being humans, uh, this lady was awesome. And everybody who listened to her speak was just like, they walked away from her like, God, like anybody would have hired her after that, right? And what was freaking glorious is that right after that, Tara was basically like, we're hiring you. And I ran into her two nights ago, and she's our employee. And she's one of the best employees we have because she's just as real as real can be. And so when a mom calls us up and says, you know, I'm in a spot, our worker has been there. She knows she's able to support these. So it's it's more of a story about the importance of peer support and these other things, but it's also importance that we're never going to get over the stigma and discrimination if we don't put the real people in the front, right? Um, I love that. I truly love that, Michael, because it is true, right? It is so true. And and that's the reality. It's it's funny. People ask me all the time, who are you, what's your, who are your favorite, what's your favorite population to train and do work with? I'm like, I was telling them it's the inmate population. I, mm-hmm. I love working with inmates. I love working with people who are just typically, I mean, it wasn't their pants. They didn't do it. They're not guilty, but for the most part, they're pretty authentic, genuine, right? So last question. And then I know um, we're going to wrap up this podcast, but I would like, always like to ask my guests, what book you are currently reading? I'm reading The Innovator's Dilemma for the second time. Yep, that is the book I'm currently reading. And my Bible is a Lean Startup. So anybody who does project development out there in the world, I would highly encourage Lean Startup uh, as a great book. What about you, Tara? Oh my gosh, you guys, and he's all like all uh Seven effective habits of a leader um, or something. <laughs> so I'm seriously, I'm I'm just went to my room to tell you dessert can save the world, number one. And um puppet and shadow. 
by Emerson Park, who, just so you know, is my best friend in her, her second book. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> I have to use like, just like release. I do make myself, I think I, I, well, I tell myself every other book is supposed to be, you know, one for education to learn and the other one just smut. Um, well, that's two like not great ones, but that, that's what I'm reading right now to get, just have a little break. I love it. Thank you guys both for being on today. And for those out there that are interested in learning more about Hushabye mm-hmm. Nursery, you can go check it out at hushabynursery.org. I'll interrupt and I'll say anybody who wants uh, information for uh, about us, who thinks that we have synergies together, I will come to you and have a meeting. I will present to your staff. Um, I will do anything that would be helpful to your or our population. Awesome. If you want to come tour, you can come tour too, or we can do a virtual tour. That is my plan in September to be out in your guys' neck of the woods and, and come and, and check out Hushabye Nursery and, and see you guys. So We would love that. We, anyone, seriously, if you want to see it, it's really hard to say in words. Uh, when I when I first met Michael and um, we were working together, I said, I want a safe place. I want a place that like, when you walk in, you just go... I can do this. And I can tell you, I have so many moms that once they get to us after having their baby, they, you know, do that deep breath when they get in the room and they start talking with us and and they're just like, oh, and I'm not going you, this is what we wanted. And And it's the place for not just mom, but for mom, dad, baby to heal. Awesome. But you you literally see the shoulders lose weight. I mean, you literally see it when they walk in the door. It's insane. I love that. Well, Michael and Tara are they're located in the state of Arizona, and so I know they've been pushing out some of this programming in in other counties. And so, thank you guys both so very much for being on Trauma for Breakfast, and we'll also be checking out the the books that you guys talked about as well. So, um, Stacy, I think I think you made a very important comment at the end. Can I totally yes. ruin your uh, do it exit? ruin it? And actually, then so, you can like talk us out, Michael. So it, it's Tara and Mai's brain that Hushabai is a beautiful and the best agency in the country, right? But you don't necessarily need a Hushabai agency in your community to change the way people interact with this population. And so it's our belief that each community has a list of ingredients. You have a hospital, you might have a children provider, you might not have a children provider, but maybe you have an OBGYN. But there's some list of these ingredients that you can bake some kind of program with. And so even if it's two partners, if it's three partners, I believe in my heart of hearts that you can make a system of continuum of care that supports this population and will have better investments and outcomes for your community than the current system we're trying to run. And so if you have any of those questions or if we can help you with any of that, Tara and I would be more than happy to uh, have those conversations. But just because you don't have a hushabai in your community, I do not believe in is an excuse not to start this kind of shift narrative. Absolutely. And I will be placing in the show notes so everyone knows contact information for both Tara and Michael so that you can reach out. So thank you everyone for joining us today on Trauma for Breakfast and we will see you next time. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. We're so thankful that you all shared in today's conversation. We are always here and ready to set one more place at the table. Thanks for joining us on Trauma for Breakfast. 
Trauma for Breakfast is brought to you and supported by Matt Force, working together to reduce substance abuse, and Yavapai County Community Health Services, working toward healthier communities.